0: today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 14 verses 22 to 36. Again, that's Matthew chapter 14 verses 22 to 36. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, you can find one underneath the chair in front of you and just open it to page 770. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here, worship with you, and share the Word of God with you this morning. Um, before we begin, I just wanted to remind: if you got an email from me about a smaller group leaders meeting, it's right after service, so please stay, try to come up here, and then we could have a quick discussion before moving on to the food part. And there is also another one uh, announcement that I wanted to share again with you: it's membership classes are starting next week. Uh, It was announced in the bulletin, Karen said it, but if you want to know more about our church, if you're interested about um, what we believe in, what the membership process takes, please join me uh, next week in room 202. And so those are the two that I want to share with you before we begin this morning. Let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. That we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you. And aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This is a pretty famous story. It's interesting, uh, the reason for its fame. People may have heard of it. It's the story where Jesus walks on water. Like, ooh, water, and then you, what you, the images that are projected to us are people like magicians who would walk on like a pool or something like that, and they would walk, and everybody would be ooing and eyeing, and in fact, if you said, walk on water and you typed it in Google or YouTube, you would just see these magic tricks or magicians do it. Is that the point of the passage? I mean, obviously, the answer I'm going to say is no. But here's another thing that a lot of people think that this passage is about. People think that this passage is about, oh, when the winds and waves are crashing over you. Okay, whenever the Bible talks about the winds and waves crashing over you, it's talking about death. I find it interesting that nowadays there are more contemporary worship songs about winds and waves crashing over us, and it's about love. This is not any kind of imagery in the Bible that we see. Winds and waves crash over you, you're dead, you're kaput, right? And so now the winds and the waves are crashing over you, all you need is faith faith to triumph over the trials of this life. And that's the point of the passage. Um, It's true, you need faith in life, especially when trials come. But is that the point of the passage? Well, obviously, my answer is going to be no to that one too. So what is the point of this passage? And why is it that sometimes something so familiar to us can be so elusive to us? And it's because as people of God, we need to be people of the Word. We cannot assume that we automatically understand the Word. In fact, whenever we are in a position to read the Word, we should humble our hearts and say, What is God saying? This is why church fathers and past continue to say, like, the more they have lived life, the more they read the Bible they have realized the posture, and we talked about posture last week, the posture in which we read the word of God should be on our knees. It shouldn't be in a critical lens, like unfortunately the way I learned in school. You know, What does this say, and how can I critique it with this kind of textual, historical, literary criticism? But the more we see the word of God, seeing this is the words of God, the posture that we take in the word of God should be on our knees, saying, what is the Lord saying? So to take this story and to appropriate them to our cultural understanding, meaning there are going to be tough times in life and we need to have faith in Jesus, could be a truth in the story. I'm not saying it's not true, but is it the point of the story? And is that all we're going to walk away with? And hopefully, as we've seen, as we've gone through Matthew, some of you have said, wow, this is long. But also, some of you have also said, this is also good. Regardless of whatever you think or whatever you're saying, it's good discipline for us. It's good discipline to understand how each verse, each passage, each book come together to give one massive point. What is that massive point in the climaxes? In this passage here. If I were to look at this passage. As an expositor. Without any presuppositions of what I've learned before. I would say it would show you at least three things. There are three topics that you see here. Number one is Jesus prays to the Father. Number two is Jesus takes care of his disciples. And number three. Jesus has compassion on the sick. Every point in this passage. Directs its attention to the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel's intent is for us to see the majesty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that said, may I remind us again what kind of posture we are to have when we read the word of God. Sometimes, sometimes, it's not easy to have this kind of posture. Sometimes when we see things and we take, you know, we take things for granted, am I right? You know, we want to read the Bible every day, so we want to read the Bible every day in the most convenient way possible, which is, which is not terrible, mind you, but if that's the main goal, so that I can just check off a box, so to check off this box that I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to find the most convenient way possible, my challenge to you is this. Is that the right posture? And if you're not even reading the Bible every day, then I would say, how are you meditating on the word every day? And as you meditate on the word every day, what is your posture? What is your posture? Just as we've read in our catechism today and what we've recited, the posture is that the very words of God is what God gives us. And if God is giving us the word of God, what is our posture? And so we read this passage and we pray that our posture is right before God. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Immediately after what? One of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did just happened. All four gospel accounts record this, which has not been done before, like I said last week, has not been done before for any other event except the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. Besides the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ, no other miracle that Jesus ever did is recorded in all four Gospels except this one, the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 is just men. And we said, scholars have thought, maybe, perhaps, If we are to include women and children in this number, about 14,000. 14,000 people Jesus had fed with five loaves of of bread and two fish. But 14,000 is a conservative number. If we look at what a possible or probable number, more scholars have now put it up to 25,000 people. 25,000 people is a sports stadium full of people. Imagine a sports stadium full of people and Jesus taking two fish, five loaves of bread, and feeding them all. Feeding them all. That is the incredible miracle that all these people, thousands and thousands of people have witnessed. And not only did they get to eat some of this fish and bread... Man, sometimes I wish when I see things about food, I wish I could have eaten it back in the day. So you know how a lot of people are like, if you could go back in time, where would you go? For me, would be like, i like to taste some manna. I'd like to taste some of the fish. <laughs> anyway, but people that ate this were satisfied. You know, another word for this word satisfied is the Greek word they, they use is gorged. It's another word that we have extrapolated from this uh, word, satisfied. Now we have the English word gorged. They were full. They were satisfied. They were like, oh, that was good. That's the word that's used. So with two fish, five loaves of bread, 25,000 people possibly were satisfied. They were able to gorge themselves and still be full. That's the immediately. So this is what we're talking about. So obviously after this event, Jesus would do what anyone else would do in that situation, right? He would bask in all its glory of this miracle that he just produced. No, he didn't. He didn't. Can you imagine yourself doing some incredible, amazing event in a stadium full of 25,000 people? And the people are elated. They rejoice. They're just extolled to their their highest being, and then you can just take in all of that. No, that's not what Jesus did. He immediately makes his disciples get into a boat. That may confuse you, but let me confuse you a little more. That word made is enakzo, which means compel or forced So immediately after the most incredible event that Jesus has done so far, he makes, he compels his disciples to get on this boat. You have to wonder why. There are two other gospel accounts that talk about this. But Matthew is a little special, and we'll get into that. Matthew is a little special, and we'll get into that a little later. But the two other gospel accounts is in John 6 and Mark 6. In John's chapter 6, after he fed these people, they wanted to make him king. So you do something like this. They want to make you king. Why do they want to make him king? To rebel against the Roman authority. You know, if you could feed an army of 5,000 able-bodied men, you can start a revolution. If there is an infinite amount of food you could go anywhere back, and all you needed was tools. You pick up tools, you pick up weapons, and you could just be fed. You know how the main way of defeating another army was to starve them out, right? So, if you're in a city and you have walls, you would surround that city and you would starve them out until they died or they gave up. That's how you would win. But what if there was an infinite, unlimited supply of food, like Jesus? All we need is two fish and five loaves of bread? We're good. We have 5,000 able-bodied men just in this area of Galilee. Imagine how many more we can recruit. Jesus, you could take over the world. Think of the possibility, Jesus. We could make you king. John 6. But Jesus did not come for social change. I want you to understand this. Jesus did not come for social change. It might be hard for you to take in, but Jesus didn't come for social change. Jesus didn't come for political change. That also might be hard for you to take in. Jesus did not come for political change. Jesus came for a lasting spiritual change. But also, why did he do this? In Mark 6, he says, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. This is verse 31, if you're in Mark 6. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, they had no leisure to even eat. So they were so busy. All this stuff is happening. You know, uh, John the Baptist died, he was beheaded. Before that, he was rejected, so he was chased out of Nazareth. So you, you can imagine, they are so busy. And every moment they get, people are coming and asking for a miracle. People are coming to get healed. They, even, they didn't even have time to eat. That's how busy they were. So he would say, you need time. You need a Sabbath. You need to separate yourselves. So he would put them, he would make them go on this boat and just started dismissing the crowds. I find that word dismissed pretty amazing. If you have thousands and thousands of people and you're one man, what power do you have to dismiss? But I find that also to be pretty miraculous. If you think about it, how do you disperse a crowd? Especially if they just, you know, we have a hard time dispersing crowds here. We have like, not twenty-five thousand. like please go home people please and then there'll be times like, oh we're trying to have a meeting please go home the rest of you and people would just still lounge around and hang around but jesus here disperses that crowd he dismisses them and i find that even just amazing to read and here we are just in verse the first verse of this passage and it goes after he had dismissed the crowds so he did it he went up to the mountain by himself to pray and when the evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against him. Now this, to me this passage continues to climax and climax and climax. It gets more and more incredible. With every word, with every sentence that we are reading, it just shows you the incredibleness of the person of Jesus Christ. So after he dismisses the crowd who wanted to make him king, who didn't even have time to eat, he would go up in the mountain to what? to finally check his email. No, he actually goes up into the mountain to finally check all the notifications on his phone. No, he goes up into the mountain to pray. That is his priority. And he prays to the Father. We can only imagine what he prayed, but we can't imagine what he prayed is going to be fulfilled in the next few verses. But he goes to the mountain by himself to pray. And he has all the reason to do so, especially in light of what had happened in the previous chapter and verses. And then when evening came, he was there alone. So no one else was there. He was by himself. There's a but. But remember the disciples? Remember the disciples that Jesus made to get onto this boat? But by this time, the boat was a long way from land, and it was beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. This is not how you would set uh, away on a boat. The way they were set on a set sail or whatever, if you want to traverse the sea, you don't go through, you go around the shore, especially if it's a rowboat. You can see that I've been rowing. So you go around the shore. So if this is the lake, you would have gone like this around the shore. But something happened throughout the night. It was dark. It was evening. Remember, it was about evening. He wanted to send people to go home. He said, like, no, we're going to feed them. So it was getting dark. So by the time the disciples are on the boat, it's dark. sun is out. It's gone, I mean. And so instead of going around the shore, for some reason, the waves and the wind beat them all the way into the middle of the sea. And we see it was a long way away from land. The word that's used here in the Greek is many stadia, many stadia, a long ways many stadia. If you look at John six, it's three or four miles. Um, When we see this, a stadia was about 200 meters. So in a sense, two football fields is a stadia, many. People think it's like 20, 30 stadia. If you see it's three or four miles away from land, it's a very long way from land. And this is where the disciples are now, and we can see that it is being beaten by the waves, and the wind is against them. So no matter how much they are trying to roll back towards the shore, it's not working. Everything is going against them, and it says the wind was against them. So how are, you gonna, how, how are you going to fight against nature? You can't. You're not strong enough. And so we see they're going further and further away. From land, from shore into the middle of the sea. In verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So the fourth watch of the night, this is watch that they have separated in the night by Roman time. So every three hours is a watch. So the fourth watch was, I believe, uh, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., right before the sun would rise. So 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is probably one of the darkest times. That means they were rowing for at least eight hours. If they were set off by sunset, it was either 6 or 8 p.m., and that means they were rowing as best they could and only getting worse. And if you can imagine this, you can even imagine a time in your life where you are continuing to row. You're continuing to try your best, and it just doesn't work. You feel helpless. One of the things that I honestly uh, get humbled by, God serves me humble pie quite often because I need it. And if you know me, you're like, yep, amen, he needs it. But (laughs) a lot of times I do get served humble pie, and it's with my physical body. And sometimes uh, this past week, I just don't know why, but I've been getting this migraine and i just don't understand. And sometimes the migraine hits so bad that it doesn't matter if i take ibuprofen or if i take acetaminophen or tylenol advil whatever whatever you guys take for a migraine it just it just doesn't work. But then i get crumpled up into this one position where i start punching my head as hard as i can because even even that alleviates. It's it's better than the pain that's in the back of my eye. But even even up to last night i was just crumpled in in on my bed like in a fetal position praying like god save me i didn't know what else to do there were there are some parts in life where you just don't know what to do and i can imagine i can imagine that this is definitely one of those times imagine for eight hours you're suffering you're rowing as hard as you can and nothing you do is alleviating the pain in fact all you see in the future is death like There's no other way out. The fourth watch of the night, it's about, like, you're about done. You're about done. And this is when the disciples see Jesus. The most hardest part of the night, Jesus comes to them. And when the disciples saw him walking by the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. It's phantasma in Greek. But ghost means like a terrifying phantom, a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Cried out in fear is a nice way of putting it. If you actually read the literal language is they screamed. They went, ah! Like they were really scared. So imagine you're so drained. You're so tired. You're rowing against the wind, which is impossible, by the way. Impossible. You can't beat the wind, especially if it's going against you and going further and further away from land. And these are not noobs. These There were fishermen. There were people who knew about boats. In fact, when the interpretation comes to the English, they always go, the boat. The boat, meaning it was their boat. They knew what to do with it. It's your body. You know what to do with it. It's your mind. You know what to do with it. But no matter what you did or what you thought you knew, you couldn't control it. And you're just dead tired. And you're like, no one understands me. (laughs) You're you're like, there's no way that I'm ever going to get out of this. And then they see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, it's not like they're elated, like, yay, Jesus is here. When they say Jesus, like, ah, they cry out. It's like when you watch a horror movie and you're just like, ah, you know. But they screamed out. But immediately, immediately when this happened, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. If you're a Christian who's done some study in John, anytime it says ego eimi, we understand that to be I am, which is a title for God. In the Matthean Gospel, when it says it is I, it's ego eimi, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Every time we see in the Bible where God shows up, he always shows up and says, don't be afraid, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's like, what do we have to be afraid of? And I can only fathom that anytime we see something so great, so amazing, we don't know how to respond. And that's why we tremble in fear. And it's God who alleviates that fear by saying, don't be afraid, it's me. It's me. And Christ comes to the disciples in their most dire moment. In verse 28, now verses 28 to 32 are very special. Not just to me, but it's very special because these verses are nowhere else repeated in the other four synoptics or even in John. And so this is only happening in Matthew. And some people have wondered why. Why not Mark when Mark has a very similar. Uh, exact telling of the story and I believe it's because Peter was the main influencer of Mark's gospel and Peter as he got older he became more humble and he chose to take this story out because people might have thought this was about him funnily enough funnily enough when people read this methane account they think they're Peter too say like, oh you know what Jesus I can walk on water <laughs> and then you do some magic tricks and you make some YouTube videos. But it's not recorded in Mark, but it is recorded in Matthew. So we're going to go over that. Peter answers him in verse 28, Lord, if it's you. Now, if it's you is a conditional statement, but it's not a statement that you would have seen or understood it to be, if it's you, meaning... Jesus, if it's you, then do this for me. But it's more like a conditional statement as in, because it's you, do this for me. This makes more sense in the Asian culture of understanding. Because it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So this is not like, if it's you, because it's you. It's a condition since it's you. And it's a very, very bold request. It's a very bold request. Imagine everybody screaming in fear. They're yelling at the top of their lungs. Like, ah, right? And then Jesus is walking. And then Peter's like, wait a minute. It's you, Jesus? All right, then command me to come out on the water. Why in the world would Peter say this? Probably, after reading this account and reading all the other accounts, I could imagine it's because he's also... delirious (laughs) he's also in this delirious state but one thing in this craziness so if you can imagine it's not a calm place like this this place is pretty relatively calm you know every once in a while we'll get a baby crying but that's not a big deal in fact i love it especially when we listen to the sermon again and you hear a baby crying oh it's this baby i can hear it anyway but it's not bad but in the boat it's crazy Waves and the winds are crashing all over the place. You believe, like you believe, with all your experience and knowledge, with all that you know, you are going to die. And then you see Jesus walking on the water. And when Jesus is walking on the water, it's not like he's traversing the water, like, oh, I'm coming to get you. It seems like he's pretty much walking the water and walking on the water, and nothing's happening to him. And he's about like, don't be afraid. You know, can you imagine? He's like struggling. Don't be afraid. And like, that's not, that's not the picture you see here. But the picture that you see here is Jesus is the one that's calm when everything else is in rage. And so Peter goes, you know what? In, in this delirious state, the only safe place is where? Where Jesus is. The only safe place is where Jesus is. It doesn't matter where. So let me come to you, Jesus. Notice the words that he uses isn't, if you are the Lord, let me also walk on water. That's not the words he uses. So that's when when we start thinking, and this is called eisegesis, is when we start putting our own thoughts and our own cultural references and our own understanding into the passage, we think the whole point of this passage is us walking on water. It is not. It is not. If it's you, since it's you, command me to come to you and you happen to be on the water, I want to be where you are because that's definitely the safest place right now because where I am, we're getting drenched. We're about to die. It must have been at least in some subconscious level. I can't help but to imagine because there are very few places in Matthew where it uses the word sink and the other one place where it uses the word sink and being crushed And there's water and there's flooding and all these places is the house on the sand and the house on the rock. And I can't help but to think there must have been at least maybe some subconscious thing, imagery in Peter's head that Christ is the solid rock on which I stand. And all other ground is sinking Water, But he was thinking this, at least in the effect where, if I go to Jesus, that's probably the safest place. So Jesus, command me to come to you. And that's when Jesus goes, all right, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and came to Jesus. We don't know exactly how far he went, doesn't say, doesn't matter. But as he was going to Jesus, he saw the wind And he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, in his desperation, would jump out of the boat, but also... In his desperation, as he's walking, he sees that now things are like he's, it's actually happening. What does he notice? He notices the actual wind and the waves. He notices, it says here, the wind, and he saw the wind. He was afraid and he began to sink. He lost faith in what initially brought him out of that boat. And that's when he started to sink. His outlook changed. His outlook changed from, I need to get to Jesus, but now when that is starting to happen, we see that, oh my goodness, I'm noticing the other things around me. And I think we could really relate to this. We could really relate to this because we can say, I'm going to do this for Jesus. I'm going to do this for Jesus. This is a conviction that I have. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. And then as I start walking in faith, the winds start to come alive in my life. I could start seeing, it was always there by the way, but it starts to come alive to me, I start seeing it. And it's what other people think. It's what my body says to me. It's the things that are now swirling in my mind It starts coming alive. And that's when the test comes, and we start to fail. I think the point of this isn't to say, hey guys, You need to have faith. I think that is a point, but the point of this is, hey, guys, when you are doing something incredible, yes, Jesus calls you to do this incredible thing. When you start doing it, you will start to realize, this is incredible. This is crazy. I cannot do this. Everybody will go through that. Everybody will go through that. I think the point of this is Jesus looks at him and immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of him he saves him and then he teaches him why do you have little faith don't doubt jesus is the answer to his doubt to his fear to his un his understanding that is lacking and he picks up peter Like I said, it's climaxing. It's going up. It's becoming more incredible with every verse. So to say again, I want to remind you, to say again that this passage is simply just about us walking on water is not only to diminish the true story and the narrative that the gospel is telling us, but it's to make everything self-centered. And that is not how we should read the Bible. It's not about you. It's not about your own understanding or your own social reform that you want or your own politics or whoever you want politically to be a leader or whatever, and that's why you use Christ. If that's the case, if that is the case, then I would dare say then you are in no different position than the other 25,000 people that got to eat a little bit, but they didn't get to travel with him. You may get to eat a little bit, but will you travel with him? In verse 32, it says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. The climax of the story is not walking on the water, It's not the stilling of the storm, which happened before, by the way. It's not the wind ceasing, which is also pretty incredible. If you look at John, his account of this story is when they got into the boat, all of a sudden they were already on shore. It's like, mm, is that a quantum leap? What just happened? Did the Bible just record a quantum leap, something that physicists have tried to be figuring out for the longest time because it does happen? We're trying to mathematically figure it out, but we just don't know how. It, and so, you just, well, anyway, we'll stick to Matthew for now. But that is not the climax. The climax of this story, of this passage, of this narrative, is that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. That is the climax of the story. They were amazed, it says in Mark. In Luke, he is the one, Jesus is the one that continues to show him his person, who he is. After this, in John, I'm sorry, not Luke, John, he talks about the bread of life. After the feeding, he says, I am, ego me, bread of life. He continues to share about his person. So when we see this passage, it's undeniable that the gospel narrative is showing us the person of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is. And the more you see who Jesus Christ is, what should it lead you to? It leads us to worship. It leads us to say, truly, you are the Son of God. That's what the Bible leads us to. We don't manipulate it so that we can fit our own narrative We don't manipulate it and change words so that we can make our own social agenda about it or our political agenda about it. We don't make Jesus king so that we can now rule the world. It's our turn to rule the world. That's not the way we read the Bible, nor is it the way that anybody has taught us in history, church history, to read the Bible. I find it surprising that this is how we want to read it today. And this is why prosperity gospel is so popular because we want to read it this way. Are you hungry? Jesus is there to feed you because it's about you being satisfied. Oh, you scared? Jesus is about to make you walk on water because Jesus is gonna do that for you. And that becomes the primary climax of our understanding of the Bible. And when you read the Bible verse by verse, it's like how is that possible that we have read it this way? Because that's not what the Bible is saying. Truly, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. That is the climax. They worshiped him. That's how the story ends. That's what we are to see. Now, did the disciples fully understand the meaning of Son of God? Probably not, because we'll see in the next few chapters that they are dull. But it does mean that Jesus, step by step, is revealing to them more and more of who he is. And isn't that what we want, to? This is why you need to understand that because you've decided to follow Jesus Christ, that is a wonderful, amazing step that you've taken. But it's not it. That's not the end. With every step, with every growth or learning period, you are becoming closer and closer to Christ. That means you get to see him more and more clearly and we see that because we get to see him more and more clearly we get to understand who he is more and more and as we do that guess what it leads us to it leads us to worship so if your understanding of jesus takes you to a place that is different from where this has taken you then i want to challenge you do you really understand the jesus of the bible If your understanding of Jesus is taking to to you a place where your primary objective, where the climax of your understanding of Jesus is some kind of social reform or some kind of political reform or some kind of personal reform, can I tell you that that's not what the Bible says and you should reread the Bible? Our understanding of Jesus, as it grows, leads his disciples to worship. And if you don't know why you should worship Jesus, then I want to tell you that he is inviting you now to understand who he is. He is showing you this is who I am. You know, we are people of worship. We were innately created. And even if you didn't believe in all that stuff, we, you can know that just inside of us, we have something that wants to worship. When we see something amazing, that's our character. That's a like human characteristic. We are in awe. We are in wonder. When you see something more grandiose than yourself, we go, wow. That's a thing. That's just a normal thing. If we see something just incredible that we had not expected, we say things like, oh, my God. It just comes out of us. We are people that give worship. The question is, who are we giving worship to? And if you're saying, I don't want to give it to Jesus, then can, can I say, it's fair enough for me to say, that it's to something else or to yourself. And you are not God. And the other things, the idols of this world, are not God. And when God reveals himself, it le- leads his disciples into worship. When they land, it says when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized them, they sent around to all that region, and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, it were touched; it were made well. So they landed in the northwest side of the lake. It's a place called Gennesaret. Crowds have instant recognition of who Jesus is, and then he starts again with the ministry. But now, so much more so, definitely reminiscent of what happened in Matthew chapter nine with the woman and the hemorrhage. The people realized if only I touch the fringe or even the tassel of his garment, then I will be healed. And guess what happens? Does Jesus go, you're not a disciple, get out of here. In fact, what happens is that they were made well. Jesus made them well. This probably is one of the most powerful cases or powerful instances of what we know as common grace common grace, no matter who it was, if you just touched the hem of Jesus' garment, the fringe of his cloak, then you were made clean. And this is all in light of what just happened, the revelation that the disciples see. I see the three points. I'm going to remind you again. What what are the three things that Jesus did? Number one was, He prayed to the Father. Number two was he took care of his disciples. And number three, he showed compassion for those that are in need or those that were sick. And what does that show you? And if we're reading this as the narrative says, then it shows us the person of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is. This is the person of Jesus Christ. And yes, we should imitate the master and follow him. What are the things that Jesus did? Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus took care of his disciples. Jesus showed compassion to those in need. But all these things that we see as we imitate him, the imitation itself, really what we are doing is worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of this leads to the worship of our King. Jesus is King, and he deserves all the glory All the honor and all the worship that we have. He is the only one worthy of this worship. There is no one else that could do what Jesus did that we see here. And like I said again last week, either you will completely reject this. Completely reject this narrative and say this is not true. This is not accurate. We don't want to believe what Matthew or Mark or Luke is writing. But you cannot say that he is a good teacher. You cannot end there. Jesus was just a nice guy. Either he is king or he is your enemy. That is what the narrative sets and shows us. Either he is God over all or he is not your God and you will reject him. And that is why we must read this narrative very carefully. This is a confession that the disciples made, which was a very Christological confession. This is is a confession of amazement that they had this heart that didn't understand at first, but because of all these things, they start to understand. And in Mark, in this particular account, there's some nuances. So in Matthew, Matthew consistently and always, almost always, records the least amount of words and sentences to describe an event. So if Mark, people think, oh, Mark is the shortest book, but when Mark records an event, and let's say he uses 38 words, Matthew records the same event and uses like 23 words. I think I said that once in a sermon. When Mark records this part, he goes, Jesus was walking on the scene, and he was about to pass by them. And you're like, what, what would Jesus... Pass by them pass by them as if if imagine you're running and there was a track running if someone passes by you it's to what to lead you but Jesus slows down for who for his disciples and when people are disciples must have gotten this especially at the late stages of their lives before they were martyred and they would say this is amazing Every single thing that our Lord Jesus did led them to amazement and wonder. And the more we read the Word of God, the more it should lead us to our knees because the more it should lead us to amazement and wonder and worship. This is the God that we serve. He is better than anything else in this world, but He is the one that slows down and turns to us And then he picks us up. And then he carries us. What an amazing God we serve. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are not powerful enough. We can't even battle against the wind and the waves. And yet Jesus is that amazing. My brothers and sisters, If this passage says one thing, it shows us this one thing. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Let's worship him with all that we have, with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. God is worthy. Let's pray. By your grace, O God, we have been given this revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, And we know that we are now maturing and growing in our discipleship. It's because of you that we are able to do that. And so now we want to reflect all that you have given us, this understanding, this joy, this love, this compassion that we have been filled to the brim, gorged ourselves with. We want to reflect it now into worship. Oh God, help us to do so. We want to know you more. We want to love you more. Jesus, lead us and guide our hearts. Let's take this time to pray and pray that your hearts would turn in amazement and wonder to our King so that you can worship him and say, Truly, Jesus is the Son of God, and he deserves all our worship. Let's pray.